This is Series 3 of Brave New Girl Podcast, and I'm Lou Hamilton, author and illustrator of Brave New Girl, How to Be Fearless, and I welcome you to the stories of real-life Brave New Girls who are creatives, founders, campaigners, health practitioners, and thought leaders who are making a positive impact in the world. This week's guest is Leonie Dawson, an artist, best-selling author and award-winning entrepreneur who's generated over $11 million in revenue while only working 10 hours a week. Her podcast, Leonie Dawson Will Not Be Categorized, flies in the face of her adult diagnosis of ADHD and autism, which in fact she believes gives her magic powers. Welcome, Leonie, to Brave New Girl Podcast. Hi, Leonie. How are you? Oh, I'm awesome, Lou. How are you? I'm really good. You're bright-eyed and bushy-tailed because it's the beginning of your day and I'm frazzled at the end of my day. <laughs> I'm exactly the same way by the end of the day. I'm just like, fuck this, fuck all of this. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, so are you still in lockdown? We have just emerged out of lockdown again, but I reckon we're like lockdown adjacent. We'll probably go in again at some point. It's the way of yeah. the world. That's all right. Yeah, I think we're we're in and out too. So yeah, so it's been a couple of years, isn't it, of all of this. You know, I've been thinking about the virus and the floods and the fires and, you know, all this stuff that's happening in the world. And, you know, the the scientists are saying it's all indicators of global warming, of climate change, of climate crisis. And I know that in your work that you have kind of siphoned off some of your wealth to to supporting environmental issues and ethical investments. So do you want to talk a little bit about that commitment to sustainability? Sure. Uh, so we've always done, you know, quite a lot of philanthropy in my company anyway. Uh, we always like to donate quite large sums to different organisations that we felt really called to. Um, and it was after the bushfires in Australia last year that really came home to me, like, climate crisis is very much here and um, we need to have urgent action. Um, And so that's when I decided to do two things. One is take all the funds that I was donating to other organisations and turn it to climate crisis organisations. So last year I donated $25,000 to the Australian Wildlife Conservancy, which buys up tracts of land to preserve for wildlife. And then this year I decided to split that money in two instead um, so that half will go to an agency like Wildlife Conservancy that buys up the wildlife and then another half goes to climate crisis advocacy places which will do, you know, they're the ones that actually like push government to make more widespread legislative changes. So I felt like that part was important to, you know, like do the advocacy stuff as well. Yeah, it it just feels potent and powerful to be able to go, yep, that's a really big issue. What can we do to make miraculous changes with it? And at that point, that was the part where I divested out of our normal superannuation funds, which is like our retirement funds here in Australia, because they are often invested in in mining and in businesses that are destructive to the climate. So um, that's when we moved over to doing only um, ethical superannuation. And then we started investing as well in ethical managed funds. Uh, And that makes me really happy that we can 
put money into companies that are actually doing good work in the world and not contributing to shitholery. <laughs> so I want to talk about your business in a bit, but I wonder whether were you always driven by first of all kind of being able to help yourself and and your family and then your community but then also the kind of the wider world was that something always on the agenda or is that something that you've come to as you've sort of grown your wealth it's kind of always been in there when I was maybe four I decided that I was gonna there was three things that I wanted to do this this life what I wanted to do when I grew up was I wanted to be an artist I wanted to be a writer or I wanted to to change the world I thought about going into government to enact <laughs> those changes and I actually worked uh, in Australian Parliament House and I worked for ministers and I realised like, oh, this is this is really not the right spot for me uh, because all kudos to them, they're exceptionally hard workers. They work enormously crazy hours. They can work from 6am to midnight uh, during sitting weeks and they also have to have really thick skins and I don't have thick, I don't have a thick skin. Um, so I knew I needed to kind of exit that system in order to be able to to do change in a way that wasn't going to harm me. Um, and um, business was the, the right way for me to do that and having the philanthropy interwoven with the business is such an important part. So you were diagnosed as an adult with ADHD and autism. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder whether when you were a child, did you feel different or because you were artistic and creative that that sort of just allowed you to be what you were and it wasn't kind of anything that sort of made you feel kind of separate or other or anything, you know, I felt enormously different and I couldn't understand why other kids found the social stuff was so easy in comparison. I, I, I felt like I was an alien living amongst a bunch of normals and I'm like, <laughs> this, is, this is awful. Um, and so when I realised I was autistic, I, I self-diagnosed years before I got formally diagnosed and I knew deep in my core that I was autistic. It was such a fucking relief to realise like, oh, like what your experience as a child is very normal for an autistic person. Yes, you are going to feel all those feelings and it's actually, there's nothing wrong with you. It's just that you're built differently and your brain is built differently and that's a beautiful thing as well. It, it felt like it made sense of a whole lot of my childhood. And like, so on one sense, socially, I found life, school, very challenging. But on the other part, when I was left to my own devices, life was miraculous because I had my dog and I had my horse and I got to live on a farm and I got to, I had parents that were quite supportive of me being creative. And, you know, I had, I came from a big family, so I didn't really felt like I needed anything more than that, you know? So uh, if you'd have been little now, do you think that would have been picked up? No, because girls are still undiagnosed by a really, really high margin. As girls with autism and ADHD present very differently to boys. And of course, boys are seen as like the classic example for, you know, completely sexist reasons. So the chances are I wouldn't have been diagnosed. And 
and and this is slightly controversial, I guess, you know, it, and it's up to everyone, but I personally am grateful that I wasn't diagnosed earlier. I'm glad that I formed my own identity as Leone before I had the identity, like also developed the identity of being an autistic and ADHD person because that diagnosis does not define me. It's just one very small part of me. Um, And I know that for some people when they're diagnosed young, it feels like it's their actual identity, if that makes sense. But of course, what you need is to have the supports in place anyway. So I know of of, uh, families who have kids that they suspect. And so they're kind of like, we probably don't need a diagnosis at this point because we can provide this support in other ways. And their teachers also know that there's like that potential, like that, that the diagnosis would probably be this direction. So when you can have the supports anyway and behave as if, then it makes diagnosis kind of secondary. But of course, it's different for every single person. So I can't speak for everybody. I can only speak for my own experience. I love how you talk about how the duality of ADHD and autism is where the kind of the magic happens. It's your sort yeah. of magic spot. How does that actually feel in your head and in your body and, and in how you create and in your sort of art? Well, I think being neurodiverse is fucking miraculous. What an absolute blessing to have a brain that works this way. Um, and let's face it, like if the only reason that neurotypical people are, like have the world built for them is because there's more of them. If there were more autistic and ADHD people, the world would be built for us <laughs> and that'd be awesome. Um, and I really appreciate that a lot of the things that neurodiverse people are uh, is is probably like a, uh, a little bit better in that, you know, we are so honest and we demand really clear communication, like what does that mean? Like we're we're not we're not here for ambiguity because we don't understand it. We don't understand vagueness. So that like that that need for honesty and really clear communication is enormous. Like it's an enormous blessing. And I really appreciate that my brain just works in different ways and in quite logical ways. So I don't, I personally, and this is not the experience of every person with autism and ADHD, but I personally have a really high self-confidence and I have no issues with my body and I don't spend any time thinking about it because I think it's illogical. Like, why would I argue with how my body is made? Like, I get to enjoy this vessel that I'm in. And of course, if it needs tuning up, cool. But other than that, I'm not going to spend my time thinking about it because I think it's illogical and a waste of time. (laughs) So I appreciate it. Well, you described when uh, you were 14 that you decided it was time to to do kind of become a woman and kind mm. of go through the, the, that sort of, uh, the what's it called when you... Uh, the initiation. That's it, your initiation into womanhood. <laughs> Tell me that because it made me laugh so much. <laughs> oh my gosh. So I was about 14 and I thought, well, I'm going to be a woman now. Like I'm going to have to find out what this whole palaver is about. And I was reading one of those awful teen magazines at the time and they had a weekly beauty checklist of what you're supposed to do. And I thought, okay, 
let's see what this is all about. And I locked myself in the bathroom for three hours, like on a Saturday afternoon. And I dutifully went through the checklist, which was like, you made like honey and oatmeal mask on your face. And then you did like a deep condition of your hair and then you exfoliated and then you shaved, all these things. And I was like, this is taking a very long time. And then afterwards... Right? I like washed off and I looked in the mirror. And I was like, I don't look any different. I just look more like red. I Because like, I've had shit on my face. I thought, what a fucking waste of time. I don't look any different. I just spent three hours on that bullshit. I could have read a book. I could have gone on a lovely horse ride. I could have done anything else with my life. So I gave up on beauty standards at that point and I haven't really tried ever since. You've done it. I've done it, tick, off my list. It's three hours. I'm done and dusted. What else do they expect from me? I don't give a fuck. It didn't make things and look any different. And why? Sh- I don't need to. It's like when I go to the hairdresser and she's like, how short do you want I, my, your hair? And I was like, so I don't have to brush it so I don't have to touch it. And she's like, yeah, but you'd like to style it with some, like, some mousse or some gel? And I'm like, No. Why would I give myself an extra job? Are you not? No, it's fine. It's hair. Oh, dear. So when you left home then and, uh, you know, you're confident and you're sort of going out in the world and you sort of go and work for the government organisation, at what point did you realise actually you need to be following your passion of of art and writing? I always knew that I wanted to follow that passion of being an artist and, and a creative. Like government was... My, my second choice. The reason I didn't go for it was because my parents are farmers and they said three, like they gave me three very stern money lessons over and over again. One is you cannot be an artist because you will starve. All creatives are starving. Uh, secondly, you cannot own a small business, a small business because all small businesses fail within the first five years. And don't bother earning over $75,000, like that was the highest tax bracket in Australia, uh, because then you pay too much tax and it's just not worth it. <laughs> right. So that, like, three diverse but very confusing government job it was then. <laughs> yeah, and like as somebody who is a creative who has, uh, has earned $11 million um, and like with really high profit margins, I just want to say like that that three bits of money advice and career advice is so fucking wrong. Um, like I have a small business. It's not failed. It's done amazingly well. I earn over $75,000 a year. It's amazing. <laughs> and you get to be creative. And I get to have a career. And guess what? Nobody's fucking starving. And, you know, here's the even funnier part is that I have, like I've got enough cash saved up that, I'll be able to look after my parents in their retirement, right? Because somebody didn't look after their retirement. <laughs> Have you had that conversation again about the three tips for for living? Well, yeah, like I don't, I don't, I didn't list it out as a way like to go, <laughs> fuck you. But, you know, it's like, it's quite clear was what's there. And, you know, my dad is um, enormously proud, you know. He says, I just can't believe what you've done. I just... I just can't believe it. I, um, it's funny, when I decided that I wanted to, that, you know, I'd go, gone into government, I thought, no, this is not for me. I need to become an artist. 
I thought, oh, God, I'm going to have to come out to my parents that this is it. I've, this is my life choice. I'm going to have a lifestyle they don't agree with. And I remember flying home back to the farm and my dad picked me up from the airport. And at that point in his life, he just, he communicated in grunts. So um, for most of my life, my dad just was a grunter. And it was only when my parents got divorced that he actually started talking, which was like, what the fuck is happening? the fuck is happening? Um, anyway, he picked me up at the airport and I said, Dad, I've got something really important I need to tell you. And he said, Ugh. I said, I've decided I'm actually going to become an artist. Um, that's what I'm going to do with the rest of my life. And he said, Ugh. well, there's no money in being an artist. And I said, well, you're a farmer and your father is a farmer and your father's father was a farmer and there's no money in farming either. So I guess I just come from a really long line of dreamers. And he said, oh, you think you're funny, don't you? And I said, I do. God, that was the best fucking line I've ever come up with. A long line of dreamers. Farmers. Ah! So oh, I just carried so on. Brilliant. So what did oh. So what did that look like then, becoming an artist? So it, what it meant was that I... I didn't know how to make money, like, at that point in time. Like, I was earning bits and pieces from different things. And I thought, okay, no, I need to – I want my creative career. I want my creative business. This is how it's going to happen. And I didn't know how to make the numbers in order to be able to make it into a job. And so that was when I made a real commitment to myself. I thought, well, there's other people who know how to do this. Like, I'm not going to just give up because I don't know. other people who know how to make money through having creative careers, I just have to learn what they know. And the way I saw it was like my creative muscles were really strong at that point because I took, I went to the gym every day, the creative gym every day. But my business and marketing muscles were completely flaccid. Like I'd never picked up a weight at the business and marketing gym. So I, it was a commitment to myself like, right, this is what we do now. This We're going to build up this business and marketing muscles and learn the keys that other people know in order to build success. And I am going to have my damn creative business that's successful. And so I did. I mean, did you have a natural gift with numbers? Did it when you were learning? Did it <laughs> see your face? No. <laughs> You're like no. <laughs> then. So, so could you feel the kind of cogs in your brain kind of slowly, slowly kind of graunching into to kind of action as you learned this stuff? Yeah, it's it hurt. It's like going to the gym when you haven't built like built like lifted any weights. It hurts. And of course, when you're learning new things, your brain is trying to form new neural pathways. It hurts. Like it feels challenging because you haven't done it before. But it was just through that process of like, okay, what about this little bit, this little bit, let's try that part. You know, I would just read every marketing and business blog and magazine and book and course I could get my hands on. And I wouldn't just read it. I would start like, go, oh, okay, let, let's implement that. Let's pull that out. Let's try that. Let's try that. Let's see what makes a difference. And that way that I could keep doing the things that made a difference and then just discard the rest. And it's incremental and it builds up over time. There's people always like, what's the secret to your success? How do you like go from that to, you know, you've brought in over $11 million. And I'm like, there's no secret except for that daily dedication to 
trying something new, testing it out, seeing what works, keeping what does, ignore the rest. So what were the first sparks then? Was it definitely kind of digital marketing? I mean, when when was this all happening? And was it kind of very early days? Of- very early days. So this is like 2007, I think, that I made that commitment to myself. Digital marketing wasn't, wasn't a thing then. So I was blogging, but um, I would sell my artwork at markets and I was running retreats and workshops in person. And then I was selling prints and custom artworks through Etsy. And then right at the start of 2008, I think I ran my first e-course because I'd never heard of an e-course before there. And there was one person who launched a creative e-course. And I remember one of my best friends calling me going, oh my God, did you see what this person did? She's doing a course on the line. And um, it was was life-changing to realize that you could do that. And, um, you know, I've been such a massive fan of e-courses since then. And so how did it start to evolve into something that you felt like this can include my art, it can include my writing, it can include kind of my whole life. And, you know, all of this you were learning while the technology was actually developing, wasn't it? Yeah, for sure. Like there was no, I've never been somebody who would niche. Like I've always just, I've never wanted to talk about one subject and I've never wanted to create in one way either. So I like, I've just like everything I've wanted to create and everything I've wanted to talk about, I just throw it all in there, Um, which still seems kind of unique in the online world. And I don't give a fuck. I really don't. I'm just going to keep on doing this thing that makes complete sense to me. And it's really funny. Like People now are like, oh, how do you build a website? I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? We had to custom code that shit back in those days. Like you've got stuff like Squarespace and Wix and all these amazing plug and play websites. I would have fucking orgasm to have something <laughs> like that. And I didn't know coding. I didn't know coding. I just taught myself just by like kept on Googling <laughs> back and forth. Like how do I do this fucking thing on my blog? But then you did grow and I think that I've heard that you had a membership and then you you grew and you had like loads of staff and it was all massive and I presume taking a ton of time just looking after people. So mm. how did that sit with you? So um, once I started creating, that was like 2008, me and my husband went full-time in the business about 2010 because uh, we had our daughter then and we wanted to both be at home and kind of juggle parenting together. And it continued growing about kind of doubled or tripled in size each year, Uh, brought out my membership program. And then about, I'd say 2014, 2015, it just continued to grow. And it was a multi-million dollar a year company at that point. And we were still self-publishing my workbooks, my goal workbooks, which I'd started bringing out by that point, which became hugely popular. And we were printing them, self-publishing and printing them through China. And, you know, it was about $500,000 a year to do these print runs because they were just massive print runs, you know, it wasn't a small print run. And so I needed a team to be able to like do all these activities that I wanted to do. And I thought that was the next thing I needed to do in my business. Like, I, okay, well, the business has grown, so I guess we need more stuff. So we did, we hired a lot more people. We had 
I think 20, 25 people at one point in time. And I thought, oh, this is really fun in lots of ways. Like, yay. But then like when reality sets in and you realize that you have to work even harder than you've ever worked before, your job has changed from creating and sharing what you want to, you know, with the world uh, to instead managing people dramas, which are just constant and never ending and horrifying, especially for somebody with autism. I'm like, what is even people? Why? I don't understand how their non-logical brains work. Ew. Why are they upset about that? <laughs> I don't get that whatsoever. And, um, you know, by that point as well, we had our eldest daughter, but we also had another daughter at that point and she was still a baby and a toddler when we were going through this. And I, you know, I wasn't working crazy hours, but I was working 25 hours a week, which is, I would like to say, like I've only ever kept my business to 10 hours a week so I could spend the most of my time with my kids. So 25 hours a week. And I know people are like, 25 hours a week, that's great. No, it felt like it consumed me. I couldn't do it while still breastfeeding and having a toddler and it just wasn't who I wanted to be at all. I was only working 25 hours a week, but the most of my time outside of that was talking to my husband on how to problem solve the next issue that had come up with the company. And I just thought, this this sucks. I really hate this. I hate this so much. And I, w- I was so critically burnt out. Um, by that point as well, I had developed what ended up being swine flu. And so I had swine flu for six months and was horrifically, horrifically ill from that. Um, I just knew that I either, I had to make a huge change because I couldn't keep going on with the business as it was. It was no longer my dream. It was something I wanted to run away from. And so purposefully reduce the size of my business. And it took, you know, a number of years to get there. But now I just have a part-time staff member and it's beautiful and it's miraculous and it's still hugely profitable and just makes me so much happier. So I right-sized my business and it was the best thing I ever did. I've heard quite a few people talk about how they've, they're either at that point where they've just got a ton of staff and they're going, what is, what am I doing? Or that they've just moved forward and just said, no, I've got to reduce it. I've got to change. So I wonder whether kind of in retrospect, if you'd have known it was possible not to have to have it, had a load of people and still grow, what would you have done differently? How could you have done, how could you have grown the business and not taken on a ton of staff? Sure. So um, my accountant clarifies this in a really simple way. Um, he's been such a wonderful financial advisor over the, well, not financial advisor, business advisor over the years, financial as well, but business mostly. And he said, Leonie, when you, your business is growing, you know, you've got two options. You can either insource the work by hiring a large team or you can outsource it by choosing certain elements of your business where you uh, contract another company to fulfill those things for you. So, so for example, for my publishing arm, I might have worked with another company for them to fulfill that function instead or I worked with another company for those people to do the customer service instead of me hiring the people. You know, there's pros and cons of both but mostly it's about personality fit and what works for you. And I would argue back to him, and he would agree because I'm very compelling, (laughs) that there is a third way of doing things. (laughs) 
Uh, there's a third way of doing things, and that is to change your business structure so that it's actually it is streamlined, so that you don't actually have to put more people power into it, um, and you purposely and mindfully grow in ways that don't necessarily require more human power, more human time in order to be able to do it. So has kind of the online courses been very much part of that then? I mean, my business has always been really online, like online e-course either way, but um, some key changes that I made to be able to have a small team is one, I don't self-publish through huge print runs through China anymore because it's a massive, massive undertaking to pull that off. And instead, uh, we've done two things. One, I signed a publishing deal with a company and so they published the books and they took on all those roles instead. And then after a couple of years, I was like, this is still not my jam. I actually prefer to be much more in the thick of the weeds. I just take the easy option and I print on demand through Amazon. I have print on demand through Lulu as well through a Shopify cart and I just found it still required so much human time to be able to manage the customer service stuff. When you can do it through Amazon, you cut out all that need for customer support staff. So uh, customer support staff in our biggest days would take five or six people to pull that off. So anything I can do to not create emails for people is very good. (laughs) And so what's your vision for the future then? Pretty much the same as it is now in that I have, well, I have two assistants at the moment who together only work about 25 hours a week in total, the two of them. And I always swore up and down I only have one part-time assistant, but the second one, one comes in handy so that they can take holidays and one person can manage the customer service stuff, um, which can really, I don't know, it really can make you dead in the brain. Sometimes you're just like, <laughs> and the other person can deal with kind of more of the online business management stuff, which is, you know, like helping to create the launches and setting up a whole bunch of the automated systems. So it tends to work a lot better for me to, yeah, have those, those two, but I won't add to that. Also, <laughs> I like... By sheer hilarity, I've discovered that it's actually better for me to hire people with the same neurodiversity as I have (laughs) because we completely understand each other. We have the same communication style. We have the same values. It's just beautiful. And they're very accepting and encouraging and excited of when I do things that drive neurodiversity typical people completely mad. So, for example, the best part of business for me is not planning out things in advance. I just like to run with ideas when they come to me. It's just such a joy to me. So, for example, I'll have an idea maybe on a Friday night. I did it for the money manifesting course I did. I had the idea Friday night and I was like, that's a really cool idea. And then Monday afternoon I had I had the sales page written I'd created the structure of the course and I was selling it. Because I'd gone completely into the creative hole, I didn't tell my assistant that this happened, like this was happening. So she found out that I was launching a course at the same time as everyone else. And that could really shit off other people that I've hired. Absolutely. I get that. And you know, previous people I've worked with, like, no, Leonie, you can't do this to our work schedules. We've already got these plans. And I'm like, too fucking bad, I've made this thing. Whereas the staff I have now. 
now we're just like, yeah, this is so cool. Woo! I'm so excited. <laughs> so with everything that you've been through and and grown and really sort of allowed yourself to live a life that you want to live and be all that you want to be, how do you define courage? I think it's, you know, when you know that something's the right thing to do, even though it's going to be hard and you you do it anyway because you know that there is a, there really isn't any other option you know when and when it that came to downsizing my business like it felt so painful and awful to go through some people just you know would leave you know because they'd got another job or whatever and I just wouldn't replace them and then there was a few people I actually needed to fire because they were underperforming and it felt awful. I cried absolute buckets over it, but I knew that it was the right thing to do, that it just couldn't keep going on the way that it was. And um, yeah, it's doing it even when it feels enormously painful. And But you just know anyway, this is, this is actually the right thing to do. And also when it came to like saving my business from itself and from its, you know, that, that whole growth path, I really had to think about what my priorities were and, you know, the business cost of my time, that was coming at the expense of my family. It was coming at the expense of my my children's childhoods. And I thought, I, I actually will always choose that. I'll always choose them over anything else. I don't care if the business has to become smaller. I don't care if, unfortunately, I have to have some really difficult conversations with people. I'm always going to choose them over anything else. So that's when it becomes easier. Yeah, I always think that when you have something much bigger than yourself to aim for, like your children or your art or your creativity, that makes those decisions so much easier, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. It's like it's a painful decision, but it's not really a decision anymore because it, it's a very clear path ahead because you're you're walking towards the ones that you love and you're walking towards your biggest values. Well, thank you so much, Leonie. I have done one of your courses, which was fantastic. And I'm about to do your new one that starts in September. Yeah. And I absolutely love the monthly calls with you. That's the highlight of my month. You make me laugh so much. Such a joy. So thank you so much for your refreshingly offbeat approach to business that has allowed so many to grow in theirs and for using your success to contribute to the wealth and well-being of the planet. Thank you so much. Oh, Lou, I love you. And this has been such a joy to connect with you, my love. I can't wait to see you again at the next monthly call. See you in like three weeks' time. (laughs) Take care. Bye, treasure. Thanks, Leonie, for showing us that we can embrace all that we are to be our fullest and broadest sense of ourselves, and in that light, be the safekeepers of the world around us. You can find out more about Leonie's work on www.leoniedawson.com and listen to her podcast, Leonie Dawson Will Not Be Categorised on your favourite podcast provider. Thanks to Silk Studios for producing and sourcing the guests for the show, and thanks to you all for listening. Take care, choose courage, and see you next week.